coming up on today's podcast. Uh, uh, you know, I put it down to the fact that I was brought up in a cold, wet, miserable island with a lot of miserable people. I mean, the English, let's face it, we're, we're a miserable bunch, you know. Mother Nature, she's very strong. She doesn't give a shit <laughs> about you. She's, she's completely, she doesn't judge, you know. She's a great leveler. She's a great leveler. And you end up being uh, a little bit more humble. And that's, I think, one of the great things about stepping outside of your comfort zone and doing something like, something that terrifies you. And, and because, because it makes you think, yeah, yeah, I'm not as, I'm not as uh, special as I thought I was. At least I've got the top half kind of vaguely um, repeat, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm good I'm to just a... <laughs> I'm just so happy that I'm not the only one with bad internet because uh, I said to my wife this morning that um, she's like, "What what are you most scared of today?" Having this conversation, I'm like, "I'm scared my internet fucks up and I look like an idiot." And then once you send me a message that I'm having pretty poor internet right now, I'm like, "Yes, I'm not alone with this <laughs> challenge." I just woke up like at three o'clock in the morning. I'm like thinking, "Holy shit, I forgot the internet's really." Because I thought we we're going to do, I thought podcast, audio, and I forgot that you're going to be doing visual as well. And um, anyway, it's fine. So we'll see how, it, yeah. So if it really it goes pear shaped, then like I say, I'm going to be somewhere on Sunday where it is much, much better. I guess we'll see cool. how we go. We see how we go. My, my first question I want to ask you is uh, like an official question. Do you sometimes walk around or do you sometimes wake up or do you sometimes just think, fuck? I've got a Guinness World Record, and that feels pretty cool. No, no, you know, I know that it's it's a sort of a useful thing to have, but personally, I really couldn't give a shit. Yeah, I really couldn't give a shit. I mean, that sounds a bit flippant, but it's um, you know, everyone gets uh, you know, it's it's useful. For example, to go to schools and kids are like, oh yeah, Guinness World Records, and it helps people kind of frame who you are and to understand. But but really, it's it's I, I'm not that bothered. Uh, I'm not that bothered about it. No. And um, I wanted to ask you, because uh, with listening to some of your speeches and doing some of the listening to what maybe BBC or a few other type of, you spoke to some Scottish uh, geography uh, thing. And the one thing that I heard you say is um, nature versus nurture and what creates us. And I wanted to know what was it that many people get crazy ideas. For example, let me cross the world but very few people actually act on them. What was in your culture or upbringing or maybe your family, what was it that made you different where you actually had this an idea and you pursued it? Uh, uh, you know, I put it down to the fact that I was brought up in a cold, wet, miserable island with a lot of miserable people. I mean, <laughs> the English, let's face it, we're, we're a miserable bunch, you know? I mean, I, why does a tiny little island like this, why does it produce so many people who sort of gone to the far corners of the earth and, and made other people's lives miserable? Um, just, I'm sort of half joking, but yeah, growing up, I mean, England is a very, um, it's a very class orientated society. It still is, even though we're, I mean, things have improved, certainly, but, but just growing up, I thought, okay, coming from my family, so my dad was in the army. It was over services family, so we were all over the place in Africa. And uh, mum was brought up in Kenya, and we we're out in Middle East and all this kind of stuff. And anyway, so we, but 
settled settled uh, in England and uh, growing up I just had this sense of claustrophobia with just the way things are here and just the way that depending on what family you are born into and the upbringing that you get the school that you go where you're expected to go in life in terms of your career the kind of person you might end up marrying relationships the clothes that you wear everything is kind of very prescriptive it seems from that background and I sort of I railed against that growing up and I went through you know I played in bands I was in London I'm just pretty anti-establishment and so when I had the opportunity to travel a very lucky you know because not everybody gets to travel um I just thought okay I'm out of here you know I want to expand my mind you know I want to find out what else is out there how other people think I want to find out find out who I am I mean as a young you know nine, 18 19 year old you don't know who the fuck you are so the only and the best way to find out who you are is to <clears throat> get out of your comfort zone get away from all those people who reinforce your perception of who you think you are or your friends and your peers and whatever and, and society and, and go out and just put yourselves in put yourself in situations where you're you're sort of you're you're you're, you're uncomfortable and 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 that mm. I think is when you get to learn about yourself i think it's very difficult in the modern society uh for certain individuals or children to go through that process um something that happened in south africa was that uh, we had conscription where you had to go to the military for a year or two about 20 years ago and that was almost like a rite of passage where you became a man by doing something extremely hard and um kids my age or my peers we grew up where we didn't have that so once you finish school you're a bit like so what do I do to prove to myself that I'm a real man and it used to be like you would go to the bush or you would go fight or you would just do very strenuous activities and uh, people my age what we did is we went to the United Kingdom <laughs> where you try to start a new life and uh, that's uh, for us uh, one of the most difficult things especially if you grew up like me where I landed in the UK with 500 pounds and then transport for London find me 50 pounds on my first day because I swiped my oyster at the wrong place and I found myself <laughs> so I'm like 10% of my savings and that's something extremely difficult is creating a new life somewhere and I wonder what what do you think kids these days can do to almost challenge themselves because it is so safe uh, everywhere in, in not everywhere but Generally, I think we've evolved as a society and civilization where it's a lot safer in certain respects than what it used to be. I don't know if you agree or disagree, but what do you think kids can do these days to prove to themselves that they, to get that kick out of life? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, in a way, it's almost more crucial than ever that, that people travel to open their minds and to, and to not just settle with, um, I mean, not every, we're all different, and I just feel like I'm one of those kind of slightly you know, misfit characters. I was always going to have, I couldn't just go down the conventional path. And a lot of people are, a lot of people are quite happy. The vast majority of people, fortunately, I'm trying to find out or trying to prove ourselves, uh, the world would be, you know, a really busy place. There's nothing worse than sort of traveling to some remote part of, I don't know, the Himalayas and the next out, you know, around the next corner, there's another Englishman. It's like, no, I've come all this way to get away <laughs> from people of my own kind. I'm just sort of joking, but um, but yeah, in answer to your question, I, and the other difficult thing is how do you travel in this day and age without jumping on an airplane, which is so easy. Yeah. And we are, one of the problems we're facing, are, facing is climate change, and 
and trying to mitigate carbon emissions, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the conversations I have when I go to schools and talk to young people is how do you do that? How do you bring more carbon into the atmosphere? But but also how do you get out in the world and become part of the solution, which is to become more empathetic and understand different cultures and to bring that information home because the people at home, all they get to read, all they really know is what they get through through the media and the news and the newspapers, yeah. which is always going to have an editorial bias, um, no matter how unbiased it is. Um, so I think there is an imperative for individuals to still travel. And I think you can do it. Low, I mean, you can do an awful lot just jumping on a bike. You know, I say and I've got a friend, Alistair Humphreys, who, another, who would be another great person to interview, by the way. And he started this whole movement in the UK called Micro Adventures. So you don't have to do a round the world journey to um, mm. to to have a huge adventure and to learn about yourself. You can do it in your backyard. You know, when you get back from the office at nine o'clock. Uh, sorry, at five o'clock in the afternoon, you can jump on a bike, you can go and, you know, do something locally. And, um, and, and there's just, once you start exploring your local area, either on foot or on a bike, and there's, there's no thought that is just right there that you didn't know even exist. Yeah. No, because once, if you're in a car or a train or whatever, then, you know, it comes faster in one thing. So the connection is breaking up a bit, but uh, you just broke out there for five seconds. But you said when you're driving in a car? Yeah, so, I mean, we're so used to traveling fast in modern, mm. you know, in modern life. Car, trains, planes. And when you're traveling that quick and you've got that pane of glass that's um, kind of between you and your surrounding environment, you don't really understand what's going on around you. So my my suggestion is that you can still get out on a bike on your flat feet and have adventures just locally without belt, without producing a lot of carbon emissions and and still get to have uh, adventures locally. I think it's uh, interesting with this lockdown where in South Africa at the moment we've got one of the most strenuous or stringent lockdowns in the world where you're not allowed to do anything outside your house. However, you are allowed to walk to the shops to go purchase something and obviously if you're middle class and up, you will be, dri you will be driving with your car to the shop to go purchase something. So something that I'm doing at the moment is that I'm just walking to the shops because uh, I need an opportunity to get out of the house and... Um, I needed to buy, I can't remember, let's say it was, I needed to buy milk. I chose a, <laughs> I chose a shop that was something like uh, six miles away. <laughs> and I just walked there, bought the milk, and I walked back. And I just realized again how disconnected we are from the environment and nature and what it actually means to be a human where... It's, it's this weird thing of you leave your house, you walk five meters to your car... You travel an hour, you get out of the car, you walk 20 meters to the person's house that you're visiting, and you've, you've traveled so much, but you've done none of the traveling. So just walking around in my neighborhood, it was fascinating to see and experience. And I think we're lucky here in Africa that there's such a variety of little creatures that you see when you start walking. Uh, and I think people miss out on that. Yeah, absolutely. And and. We, it is convenient just to jump in a car and get there and you know get there that much quicker but if you, i i think that once you start counting up the the cost of the fuel that you have to put in the tank of your car keeping that car running um the wear and tear and then just the fact that you're not getting any exercise if you drive that car 
um, there's a lot of sort of benefits to forcing yourself a little bit to, like you said, walking six miles to go and get your milk. It's like, okay, it's taking you maybe a half an hour longer or maybe longer uh, than that. But, but think of all the benefits that you've got. You know, you, you, you physically, you're working out. Um, you're saving a bit of money. You're you're more aware of like like you said these animals and the and the ecosystems around you it makes you more appreciative and and you're not belching carbon. It's almost like it's a total win-win situation. But it takes a bit of self-discipline, especially when we don't have a virus lockdown. It's like what's going to happen after the virus after the restrictions ease? It's like are we just going to go back to the way we were before, or are we going to try and be a bit more proactive in terms of yeah, um, making those slightly harder choices to do to 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 make better lifestyle choices. Yeah, it's uh, and and I just <laughs> I gotta say I don't I <laughs> I don't drink milk. I wasn't going to dry uh, buy milk. I went to go buy a packet of condoms because I want to be a father, but my wife and I don't want to be parents right now. So I actually walked six miles to buy a packet of condoms. But uh, I think it's less uh, embarrassing to say that than say that I drink milk because uh, I don't believe in dairy. But. Um, uh, the the interesting thing for me about uh, uh, this recycling thing and listening to you is um, I feel it's been quite slow with uh, getting traction and then also the evolution of uh, smart recycling versus redundant recycling. And um, I think being 35 and quite young, I, I, there's certain things that I haven't experienced enough and you've been part of uh, sustainability for a long time. Are you sometimes irritated or frustrated with the slow traction of this concept of recycling and sustainable living? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, recycling is really, you could argue, is, is really not a solution at all. There's a whole field, a school of thought that's like, well, it just makes people feel good about themselves. It's like, a, you know, it's, um, it's a guilt relief mechanism. And actually, to address the source of the problem, uh, you know, you shouldn't be buying those products or you should be buying less of the products with that kind of packaging in, in the first place. But it is very, very difficult. I mean, I remember growing up, so I'm 52, I remember like in the 70s and you, you would go and get your uh, groceries, uh, you know, once a week from the local town and you get your your vegetables and your fruit and, and it would be it would be in like brown paper bags and, and off you go. And, and this rise of plastic, which now is just... It's just almost impossible to get to go into a supermarket either here in the UK or in the States um, where I where my wife is actually lives um, without like to buy fresh stuff without it covered in plastic is really, really hard. And if it's hard for somebody like you or me who we're sort of vaguely conscious about, um, you know, these choices, it's like most people that it's not even on their radar. It's getting it was getting a bit better. Um, but with the supermarkets, they were starting because there was a there was a program that came out on uh, the BBC Blue Planet with David Attenborough, and, and there was a there was a very powerful piece of storytelling involving a whale calf that died of plastic inject ingestion, and and that just sort of captured the whole country's um, mood. And, uh, and and then there was an uproar, and finally the supermarkets said, "Okay, well we'll start producing food uh, produce with less packaging." especially gross, um, you know, grocery items. And, 
But now that's completely gone by the wayside with the with the virus. It's we're we're back to everything smothered in plastic again. So it is really hard to make those right choices um, as a, as a consumer, as an end consumer. It's, it's really tough. And and what do you think is the difference between? I don't know how to phrase this, but. What needs to change within the human psyche or psychology or way of thinking for us to become sustainable? And is is that possible? Because I just I, I wonder sometimes if we look at politicians, we sometimes say, "Oh, we wish they would make decisions that is good for us as a society rather than for their political careers." But I don't think it will ever change. And I wonder with recycling if it's not something similar. Where what is it that stops us from, as a consumer, as a corporate entity, maybe as government, to buy into sustainable living? Um, well, the problem, yeah, as you said, the problems with the problem with politicians is they're basically somewhat they're largely beholden to the interests of. If ultimately it's about uh, making money for their shareholder base, then why would they change the a system that currently is streamlined in terms of their supply chain? Uh, they've got they've managed to optimize the whole process where you know they can they can deliver food to your local supermarket um, that probably shouldn't you know grown like two thousand miles away and it's flown in and the only way you can do that is by is by packaging it in plastic. So the whole thing of trying to, so, so big businesses are, are in league with, with, with uh, the political um, system. And, and so how does the individual uh, you know, feel like they can make a difference and, and actually make a difference? And I, I think that's, you know, social media obviously plays a big part um, in terms of how you actually, uh, and the mindset, I think, of sustainability is a really interesting one. Uh, I've I've been lucky enough to spend a long period of uh, long periods in a small boat out at sea, and that for me became a really useful way to understand how to live in a closed system. And the planet is a closed system. You know, we have finite resources, and we can't you know we can't get resources on, and we can't get people off to re to relieve population pressure. So the question is, how do you get eight billion people to uh, to live more simply and to scale down their consumer habits. And, and so I use the metaphor uh, for myself and for other people like schools that I go to, to talking about, you know, how do you, you know, living in a boat where you have to be conscious of every decision you make, like the food you make, the water you consume, <clears throat> because you have to make the water as you go along. The electricity that you consume for your for your lights and your electronics, it's like when it comes from wind and solar, it's like it actually becomes a bit of a, you have to think more. And I think that's the thing that we, mm. we need to be trying to encourage people is like being more mindful and conscious of every action they take. And uh, because otherwise it just becomes this another lifestyle choice. Like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm sustainable because I recycle. You're not fucking. That's that's not sustainable in itself. That's that's just makes you feel good about you know buying an electric car. Was that sustainable? Well, yeah, maybe, but but you still look at all the energy that's gone into the production of that of that electric car. Maybe it's better to keep on keep your old banger going for another you know fifty thousand miles. That is you know, because you're because you you know you're not buying a new car and 
And so there are all these kind of trendy things you can do to be more sustainable. But I think the only, but I think they're just kind of, they're feel good things. And they're ultimately mm. only a se- certain sector of the population can afford that. So it becomes an elitist thing. To be green is somewhat elitist. And really the, 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 the underlying thing is how you change your mindset in terms of, of uh, being mindful of every, every thing you consume and every action you take and what, what effect that action has on, uh, on the wider world. So. Yeah, yeah. It's a, you've traveled the world and, and you've seen uh, people that live, I don't want to use the word poverty, but you've seen people live in different cultural backgrounds and not having a lot of financial power almost helps sustainability. For example, we have a local airline similar to Ryanair and the plane flew over and a piece broke off and here in South Africa, we have shacks, uh, informal settlements, and <laughs> there's a picture where somebody was walking with this piece of uh, aeroplane, and they helped, they they used it to build uh, one of their shacks, and it's a, it's a little bit like um, if you don't have money, it forces you to use interesting ways to make a living, and do you i don't know like what's your take on that uh, i think uh, being progressive it's very um uh, or maybe like you use the word elitist like my introduction to sustainability my mom works for stellenbosch university and they've got a postgraduate uh, department that is the sustainability institute of stellenbosch so a lot of this type of thinking and ideas was introduced by accidents i don't want to say i'm very progressive it's just because i have a family member that actually introduced it to me but um is it your experience that people that live maybe in poverty or with less money are more sustainable than people that live in first world countries absolutely yeah totally i mean that's the that's the irony of this whole debate is that you know, people who don't have access to uh, to buying, if they don't have money, then they can't buy all this stuff in the first place. And uh, if you look at, for example, carbon emissions, I mean, the it's the huge majority of it is 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 uh, tied to um, just a very small population in in developed countries. So then you then you think, well, you know, you you can't keep the, you can't keep the majority of the world's population who. Uh, uh, still live in undeveloped countries. You can't, you can't ethically say, well, you can't, uh, you can't have what we have. You can't uh, um, uh, develop your natural resources so that you can provide wealth for, uh, you know, for people. Like in Indo- Indonesia, for example, when I was riding, uh, I was traveling through Indonesia. Um, I was just astonished at uh, the how quickly they were cutting down their their rainforest for palm oil. And palm oil has become this mm. massive um, product, very, very popular in all sorts of different products that we use every day. And and uh, and you say, well, what, what, you know, it's very difficult for us in the in richer countries to say to the Indonesians, well, you shouldn't be cutting down your rainforest because that's, you know, we need that rainforest to to uh, absorb the carbon that we are commit that we're emitting in through our daily lives. When the reason why they're doing that, why they're cutting down their native rainforest to produce palm oil, is because they're they're providing an income for people. You know, these people had nothing until like 20 years ago, terrible poverty, and now now there's a there's a middle class that's up and coming. And of course, some people are making obscene amounts of money from 
uh, basically plundering their natural resources. But how do you, it's, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one because places like China, Indonesia, uh, Brazil, these countries, in a, se in a sense, they have a, the right to, <clears throat> to exploit their natural world to, to alleviate people out of poverty. So it's, it's a really, really tricky one. Yeah, it's uh, I, I'm I'm way too young and I'm not intelligent enough to <laughs> to really have an opinion and a take on that. I think they are. Luckily, we do have extremely intelligent humans, but it it it's hard for me to see. It, it, there's just such a variety of worlds out there, and if you don't leave your garden uh, to go explore, then it, you don't you're not exposed to this. And um, um, I wanted to ask you, uh, maybe a little bit connected to that, is the sense of humility that I heard you talk about and I heard you experience humility. I wonder also when we talk about the first world or the developed world, the, the safety, does that uh, take away the ability to be humble? For example, if you start traveling the world and especially if you go into nature, you realize uh, how vulnerable you are. And if you're not careful, then things can go wrong quite badly, quite quickly. Is that one of the problems of the developed world, is that we lose a sense of perspective of our place in, in, in the world? Yeah, totally. I mean, I've experienced it firsthand because, you know, once you go out um, into a wilderness environment, be it uh, crossing an ocean or into a desert environment or mountain environment, and you're alone and you're exposed and... And Mother Nature um, can bring you down to side pretty quickly. And I've had, I remember leaving here when I was a young 25-year-old, 25-year-old guy, and I thought I was invincible and uh, having been brought up in that safe culture, like you referred to. And uh, you mm. think, oh, fuck, I'm going to live forever, you know? And then you get out there and you, I mean, we had some, I pedaled a boat with my uh, friend across the Atlantic to, to, uh, to the U.S., and you know, the boat was capsized. Uh, we, I nearly drowned. He nearly drowned one time being thrown out of the boat. We had a capsize. And, and it's those kind of in those situations where you realize how, you know, how Mother Nature, she's very strong. She doesn't give a shit <laughs> about you. She's, she's completely, she doesn't judge, you know. She's a great leveler. She's a great leveler. And so by the time, you, if you're lucky enough to get the other side of the ocean or the desert or whatever you're trying to cross, it's like, yeah, you've, all that shit that you've been brought up with, thinking like who you are, who you think you are, all that's just been kind of like sanded off. It's like, it's like a, nature just comes along just with a buzzsaw and just cuts all that shit off. And you end up being uh, a little bit more humble. And that's, I think, one of the great things about stepping outside of your comfort zone and doing something like something that terrifies you and and because because it makes you think yeah yeah i'm not as i'm not as uh, special as i thought i was necessarily and interestingly mm. we've had that on a mass scale now with the virus and up until what a month and a half ago it was like fuck we're we're invincible you know our culture our economy is so strong and you know we're no one could ever in, a, ever in a million years imagine that in just five weeks we would be brought to our knees by a little tiny yeah. thing you can't even see with your, na with your naked eye that's not even a, a life form. It's just a bit of RNA. It's, it doesn't even have a skin. It's not, 
you know, <laughs> we think we're so smart and intelligent, but actually, not so much. Definitely not. I wouldn't. Uh, I I speak about it a lot, but uh, I I. I, I am frustrated regularly with uh, the thought patterns that humans have and as a species and uh, I'm reading uh, two books at the moment. One is called Tribe by Sebastian Junger and the other one is called Sapiens, which uh, I always forget the author's name. And there's another book that, I'm, that I read at university called Future Wise. Um, and it just really opened my mind to see how as a species we're quite primitive in many regards and uh, the evolution of ours has been too quickly over this last time that we have engaged uh, our impact on others and it's it's weird how as a as a species we're almost not designed to work together a lot of these problems that you're talking about and what i think about i'm like fuck if we could just work together as a team it wouldn't be an issue but for some reason they <laughs> as a species we're not designed to work together and it's so sad like i, I listened to this part where somebody i think it was indonesia or asia somewhere Somebody wanted to grab the GoPro off your head and then there was a Muslim family that helped you. And it's beautiful, but it's sad that uh, kindness is beautiful and it's not the norm. Uh, that you surprised and you spoke about the French family that helped you push the boat into, <laughs> into the water. And that we're always surprised with the beauty of people helping us. And as uh, humans, that's just not the, sta the status quo or the standard uh, approach. Mm. And, I, and, and that's... And that's one of the reasons why you want to get out there and travel in the world and you, you realize that underneath all these differences is cultural uh, 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 differences, be it language or color of skin or religion or whatever it is, actually people are pretty much the same. I know that sounds a bit of a cliche, but it's, it's fucking true in my mm. opinion. You know, it's, and I've had plenty of experiences of that. I think interesting you've, you, you, you've read uh, Sapiens um, by I think his name is Harari, you know, uh, Professor Harari from... Yeah. But uh, it, it, he talks about um, uh, a bit like uh, Jared Diamond, who's another uh, kind of hero of mine, um, who's a geography professor at UCLA, UCLA. And he wrote a book. Uh, one, of, one of the books he wrote was um, Guns, Germs and Steel, about why is it that Europeans ended up uh, uh, going and essentially colonizing the rest of the world in the 18th, 19th century? How is it that the Spanish managed to conquer an entire you know, empire in South America with just like 200 guys and some horses. Like, uh, what? Um, but then he wrote another book called, uh, called um, Collapse about societies that have chosen to uh, succeed or fail. And it's a very interesting um, commentary on sustainability in terms of, you know, where, what examples do we have in history that have worked in terms of people who uh, who've managed to work together and uh, and and live sustainably um, and uh, one of the things that really kind of came out for me was how uh, tribal we are we're still very tribal and people politicians and uh, and certain minority groups will use those differences to keep the people divided for their own interests uh, rather than trying to dilute the importance of those differences. So tribalism is, uh, is, is I think, a, a still a big problem in terms of people not trusting other people in other cult, uh, uh, cultures. But uh, the other really interesting thing I, I took away from Sapiens, that book, was, and this goes back to your point about humility, was he was talking about how is it that we ended up with domesticated strains of uh, plants and animals? 
You know, you've got sheep and cows and camels and on the one side, and then you've got wheat and, you know, there are uh, wheat and oats and barley. And, you know, we, there's like most of our nutrition comes from just a few select species. And I think historically we've always thought, oh, well, we were smart enough to figure that, you know, our ancestors were smart enough 13,000 years ago to uh, choose those animals and those plants. But actually it was the other way around. In terms of natural selection, uh, it was the plants that chose us because we were the carriers. We were the vectors that allowed those, to pro those seeds to propagate along the side of the pathways when these people were coming back from, hunter, from uh, hunting and gathering. And, and the animals chose us, not the other way around. And I, I just love that idea. It flips it on its head. It's like, yeah, we're, we're just, in some ways, we're unwitting agents of, of evolution and uh, nature has a, a plan for us, and apparently has a plan for us right now with this virus outbreak, <laughs> and we're not quite as wonderful and smart as we thought we were. Yeah, I love that. Uh, one of my friends told me a few years ago, it's like, uh, if you, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's like, if you imagine wild dogs, the best thing that they did for their species is to decide to stop being wild and let humans take care of them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, species-wise, yeah, it makes complete. I mean, individually, probably it probably sucked for certain individual dogs. I mean, look at the look at these dogs you see now that are all fat and unhappy and being dragged around by, you know, by people who are unhealthy and. But whatever, that's a terrible thing. To, but but um, but uh, but yeah, for the species, it makes absolute sense. Yeah, just on a side note, the, the, one of the worst things for me to see, uh, I, I, I'm a bit of a sensitive soul, but uh, dogs that are unhappy and that don't get walked on a daily basis is one of the things that uh, triggers something very deep in my soul. I don't know why I, I find that hard to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I read a, a, a radio thing in the States the other day. I was listening to the radio and it uh, was talking about um, Valentine's Day and uh it was the amount of money that Americans spend on a Valentine's Day uh, costumes for their dogs. And it was like something like $4 billion. Oh, my. Yeah. I mean, just some extraordinary amount of money. Do you think the dog really wants to be dressed up uh, like on Halloween or on Valentine's Day in all this shit? Well, they fucking don't. It's like anthropomorphizing animals. It's like, you know, just leave the dogs, let the dogs, let the animals be animals. And that's one of the things, I guess... Uh, you know, becoming more plant-based in, in terms of diet and thinking is like, just, just let, let animal species get on with it um, and, 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 and stop trying to control as much. Definitely. And I think also um, the, the, the ironic thing with uh, the way we go about living. So, for example, I, I did a, each year I try to evolve as a human and I try to update my lifestyle to be more healthy and for example, last year, I realized that uh, I need more vitamin D in my body. And uh, the weird thing with the way I think, and I think a lot of people think, is like, let me buy <laughs> vitamin D tablets. And then, for example, when I walked to the shop yesterday, I'm like, fuck, you know, I can just... I can just change the way that I live and I will be replenished without actually having to spend money. It's just, uh, it's so interesting for me to see how we think and how we behave and uh, what makes us tick. And that's why it's also interesting uh, to talk to you because I was looking, uh, listening to your journey. I'm like, how many times over 13 years did you feel like quitting? Because I live a life that, uh, and I heard you say that it's not financially rewarding to be an <laughs> explorer always or an adventurous. And, I'm and I have a similar thing where 
I worked in the UK and um, I was there for about four years on a migrant visa. And I said to my wife last week, if I never left the UK, I would probably be on about 70,000 pounds per year right now, a salary. And I chose a lifestyle to come back to Africa and have an impact on people's lives and try to change it. And it's a very difficult path to choose because there are certain days. So, for example, my cat got injured this week. It had about a, a eight centimeter thorn in its side and I didn't have money to really pay for the hospital bill. And it's a, it's a bit like um, this lifestyle that we choose. There are some downsides to it. So how many times over 13 years were you like, fuck, is it really worth it? And what do you do to help you stick to the, the road that you've chosen for yourself? So I think it's, it's a really difficult one because we're brought up to we're brought up, especially my generation, we were brought up to uh, believe that really it was about uh, making money. You know, all my friends from college, uh, they went to London, you know, they end up in London making, and they've all made squillions. Um, they've all made a lot of money, bankers, property developers, whatever. And, um, you know, that's all right. I knew, but I just um, think about, is that sustainable for everyone? Can everyone do that? I know that's the capitalist model. But clearly we've seen that that doesn't work, cannot work for the next 30, 100, 200 years. You know, that, that economic model is not sustainable where everyone just makes as much money as they can and it's dog eat dog. And, and so I'm really interested about the, you know, how do you, um, like you were saying, like you're trying to do with your life, how do you navigate what might be seen to, by others to be a fairly idealistic path, um, trying to do some good things with your life while the time that you have on this planet, um, but also not be a burden to your family or society. So um, during my journey, it was difficult because I remember the most, the hardest parts were when I felt like giving up was not during the actual physical, um, you know, legs across oceans or across land masses, it was when I arrived in a new continent, like arriving in Australia, fuck all money, um, and then having to, you know, get hit the nearest phone box with the yellow pages and start making phone calls, uh, booking talks, making money, and 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 so that aspect of it was 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 exhausting. Like not having any money at all can be very very uh, debilitating, you know. So it's I guess. What I kind of learned over over many years is like uh, the trick, I think, is to try and shrink your overheads down as much as possible. So the amount of money you have shelling out for rent or mortgages or or whatever, uh, all this stuff, if you can reduce that as much as possible, then then that allows you more um, time in the day to do stuff which makes your heart feel better, like feeds your soul. And um, so it's a it's a balance. It's a it's a bit of a balance to find you know to, so that you have enough money to to survive and, and do what you need to do, but you don't have so much money that that becomes itself a hindrance. And in the middle there, I think there's a middle ground where uh, you have enough money to to have a roof over your head and food in the fridge and all that good stuff, but you're not complete. You know, the whole day is not just gone with chasing. Uh, chasing money because you have huge overheads and therefore you have more time with family or with your animals and or outside in nature 
and uh, and you're also maybe consuming less and you have uh, fewer emissions and it's good better for the environment that kind of lifestyle so it it's a sort of a modest i think what we're really ironically coming to learn here through the virus especially is modesty and and being more humble and if you look at all the prophets through the ages that uh, tried to tell us how to live better, be it Christ or Muhammad or Buddha or whomever, they all said the same thing, which is just live more simply, you know. And, and now we're finally mm. starting to get the message that it's not just better for ourselves, it's also better for the planet if we, if we live more simply and more humbly. Uh, and it's weird because the realization for me from this lockdown is that uh, if I want entertainment in my life, I want to introduce stimuli, for example, or go to the cinema or I want to do something. And that's what's going to make me feel better. And what's making me feel better is eliminating stimuli out of my life. So I'm, I'm not interacting with society. I'm not on the roads. I don't see road rage. I don't see people behaving selfish. Uh, I don't interact with people that are trying to make money out of my goodwill or just eliminating stuff out of my life is making me feel better. It's not like I need to introduce anything extra. And that is a really uh, fascinating and interesting idea. And by eliminating activities, that's what you say. It, 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 your overheads become so low um, that it's, uh, you don't need a lot to survive, really. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, being hit by a car. I'm just finding it interesting. <laughs> My personality, I'm not always the most forgiving person and uh, I, uh, I have the ability to hold a grudge or have a chip on my shoulder. I was wondering, you did speak a little bit about from what I heard about being slightly a rebel and uh, I was wondering, what's the emotional process like of being hit by a drunk driver from the actual event occurring to the experiencing the anger, dealing with that, dealing with the setback, and then at which point do you actually just let go of the whole process and let go of the resentment because of the major impact that it's had on you and possibly permanently, I don't know if you have aches and pains still today. Mm. Uh, so... Actually, it's interesting because the, this sort of ties into what your previous guest, uh, Robin Wolf, was talking about in terms of trauma. Because at the time, this was 95, and I was rollerblading uh, across the U.S., trying to be the first person to do that. And uh, I got halfway across the country and got hit by a drunk driver, as you, as you said. And both legs shattered. Um, my left leg, I thought, was going to have to be amputated. And, and so when I was lying there in a the hospital the five or six weeks I was there in this town called Pueblo in the in Colorado I thought I'm, I'm not going to be able to continue my journey around the world and I'm not going to be able to probably even walk again I'll probably have to have some prosthetic or something and and it was a very uh, depressing it was a very kind of bad time mentally just trying to get my head around that and goodness I'm going to have to probably go back to England and this was like you know early 90s and how do I how do I how do I generate income when I'm going to be essentially uh, crippled. Uh, so it was all those kind of wheels that were turning. Um, and uh, then I was lucky enough to keep my left leg. It didn't have to be amputated. And I got to finish, the, finish my skate across the US and, and get around the world again. And, and, uh, and it's funny, I mean, as far as the, the, um, the, any anger, I never felt any anger uh, really um, towards the guy. And he actually came to my hospital and he was an 82-year-old guy, and he was, uh, he'd been drinking, and 
He was super apologetic. I mean, you couldn't even make it up. He was like, he was coming back from a local Masonic Lodge meeting and, um, and he hit and ran and carried on driving down the road. And when the cops asked him why he carried on driving, he said he thought he'd hit a deer. But at that point, my rucksack, my backpack was in his wife's lap, had gone through the windscreen. And so it was a pretty fucked up situation. You couldn't even make it up. But anyway, so he turned up in hospital and he was just a sweet old guy. And he was really, he was really, I think genuinely, he probably didn't see me. You know, his eye, he had cataracts. And uh, so they took his license away. So I, instant forgiveness there it was, was not a big problem. But when I finished uh, my journey, whatever it was, like 10 years later, um, I realized that uh, I started to get some some uh, some issues then. Uh, I think after finishing the whole thing and then not having processed that trauma, um, I remember one time walking down the uh, walking down the the pavement, um, and I was uh, I'd finished the journey. I was trying to write my book and I was walking out and I had this debilitate completely. Uh, I, the car, this car came up behind me and I had this flashback and next thing I knew I was balled up on the on the ground just thinking I'd been hit again. And so I, I did seek help. Um, not really easy for us cold-hearted Brits to admit that we have problems, psychological problems. So I did go and speak to someone. They said, oh, you know, you need, to, you need to process this shit. So she said, well, you need to write. You know, and writing is a great way to externalize unprocessed uh, artifacts that you may have, uh, you know, not, not dealt with in terms of that trauma. And that was really helpful. So the, the, the process of writing my book was actually very therapeutic in that way, in terms of overcoming this unprocessed trauma. I want to give a shout out to Robin. Uh, and um, I asked her uh, if I could say anything uh, 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 for her. But uh, I just want to say that she says that you're her hero and she really admires you. And uh, she's like, he definitely does know that. So, uh, and, and thank you for Robin for making this possible. On your point there that uh, you just said about Brits not having, <laughs> finding it hard to be British, what is it a part of the British culture? that it's almost frowned upon to have opinions or thoughts or you're allowed to have it, but it's hard to express it because I'm trying to sometimes make peace with what does it mean to be South African. And a big part of the way I got raised here in the Cape Town area is that we got raised with of remnants of the British colony and culture. And there's definitely this, uh, this essence of be seen, not heard, <laughs> don't talk back. And uh, that is a bit of, uh, there's some sort of um, a clock that was set into my spirit uh, that even in adulthood, I, I, I really struggle sometimes to say something. And if you do do it, you have to do it super diplomatically and sometimes beating around the bush because you might cause offense. What is it in part of British culture that that is British culture? I don't know. I've tried to, I've been running away from it for most of my life. Uh, I mean, my dad was very, my dad was, was in the army and was very uh, um, like that. He was very, he had this, he had two sides to him. You know, he had the, the public facing side that, um, uh, that was sort of the army person, um, the army kind of face, if you like. And, uh, and uh, that's what we, I felt, got as, as children growing up. Um, and I, I remember thinking, ah, that doesn't, that doesn't feel right. And, and actually, of course, there was another side to him that, that, uh, I didn't get to see really as his son. 
And, um, you know, when you're young, you don't really understand why people do that. Why is there this facade that people uh, in positions of uh, responsibility or power or if you're part of an institution like uh, the military or in, if you want to go into politics, maybe you have to adopt this, this, this kind of persona in order to get along. And I, I'm, I'm guessing it was a, a, a sort of a, a, um, a bit of an artifact from the Victorian era where uh, men and women were sent off to remote parts of the British Empire and they were expected to control huge geographical areas and, you know, enormous numbers of people, the local population, just through force of character. They had no, you know, they didn't have uh, huge resources in terms of being able to control, like people, like these district, uh, uh, district uh, officers in places like India or, or wherever. I don't know, in South Africa maybe as well. Like it was just the only thing that kept the whole show going was just having a force, having this larger than life character, force of character. And people just thought, shit, mm -hmm. I don't want to fuck with this person because then it's like, you know, queen, you know, the queen or the king or whoever's in charge, they're going to come sailing over the horizon and kick my ass, you know, that's, but that's, that's the way these, <laughs> that's the way the empire was run just through minimal, minimal uh, human resources. And I just wonder if that kind of followed through to modern day. I mean, my dad was, was very much like that. I was just terrified of him growing up. And, and of course, in later years and when he was, uh, and he was uh, unfortunately passed away about nine years ago from prostate cancer. And I got to look after him for the last four months of his life and, and not having really seen eye to eye growing up um, when he was uh, dying. Um, of course, I just got to see a different side of him. He didn't need to keep up this facade anymore. And, and so we managed to reconcile a lot. Um, and I feel very blessed to have been there to look after him and, uh, and, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. The, the Brits are a funny bunch, but I think we're dealing with a lot of old uh, ghosts and skeletons of, of dealing with this, of being sort of the top dog, you know, in the world. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and of course, we've made a lot of people's lives miserable in the process. A lot of people in other cultures, uh, other cult, uh, countries, and, and uh, now we're slightly paying the price for that, you know. Yeah, I, I find it interesting how uh, people complain. Uh, I've I've read and I've experienced it where certain British people complain about foreigners in the UK, and I'm like, fuck guys, you shouldn't have conquered the world a uh, hundred years ago if you didn't like that. You know, it's uh, <laughs> like what you want to do, like. Uh, um, and there's definitely, I, I, I remember from growing up as a kid, it's gone now, but there's definitely the sense of patriotism where still there's a little bit like, you know, fuck the English because uh, we were a colony and the stuff that they did to us a hundred years ago. It's uh, very interesting as humans how through the generations negativity is passed down and um, people still hold on to stuff from a, a very long time ago. Uh, it, it's and from your point, uh, it's weird how vulnerability and intimacy, it's a little bit, um, it's unsafe. You know, it's safer to present a facade rather than voice uh, uncertainty. And uh, you spoke about your father being ill. My father almost died from leukemia. And it was also very strange for me um, 
to experiencing him as a human for the first time. He always was, he was always this indestructible, larger than life personality. And um, uh, to see him ill and capable of dying, it was a very weird thing because he always presented a sense of strength and character character and assuredness, even if it was done in a very uh, harmful or maybe sideways angle, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I've always wondered that about South Africa, because I was having a discussion with my friend Chris the other day about South Africans, and he used to date a South African girl. And actually, it started, started off because he was like, I dated her for like two or three years, and I never really did understand what was the difference between... Uh, Right now and now now. Yeah? It's like <laughs> right now and now now. But then that kind of we got on to uh talking about um uh how tough and how macho South American guys uh South African guys are. You know, you guys are just like I mean, us Brits, we feel like complete wimps. You know, I was you were in London probably after I was in London, but it was like a lot of South Africans they were running the pubs and um, and they were just all fucking tough guys, you know, and I'm and that's a bit like, you know, like the Aussies are pretty tough, but the South Africans take it to another level. So. So, I mean, if I could ask you a question, what's what's all that about? <laughs> I think you guys gave us a really hard time uh, uh, hundred and twenty years ago, and uh, it forced us to be quite tough. I think uh, um the, if you look at the history of any uh, society, uh, I think uh, it's a little bit like shaping a sword. You fucking mold it and you hit it, and through going through a very hard time, you mold something very tough and uh, durable. And my wife is Polish, and uh, I've done a lot of research on Polish history, and they've had a thousand years of dictators trying to fuck them over, and somehow they've never given up. Like mentally, it's not part of the Polish. Uh, consciousness to give in and that's why polish people are who they are and i think um we are obviously a lot of us are dutch uh, a lot of us uh, are english but definitely uh, being Afri- uh, an afrikaner uh, meant a hundred years ago that you were having some hardships and uh, what happened was that uh, the voortrekker or the farmer the boer had to almost like escape out of cape town and travel north and you know what it's like to go uh, with no engine or motor. So a hundred years ago when there were no medicine, no nothing, and you had to travel through Africa for a thousand to two thousand kilometers, I definitely think that shapes something in your personality. And um, uh, we definitely grew up with a chip on our shoulder. We definitely quite dumb where <laughs> we always pushing each other to go a bit further. But interestingly enough, uh, you say that that uh, maybe Poms or British people are a little, little bit softer. But I interviewed two guys that were in the British Army, and they're from the Free State. And uh, they changed my whole perspective on British people. They say the best people that they served with were British people. And they have so much admiration for the mental cap- uh, aptitude and capability and bravery that British people possess. So... I, th- I think it's also a little bit um, who you associate with. But yeah, we are quite big and strong and dumb uh, most of the times. <laughs> yeah. so on your point of right now, <laughs> that's something that comes up. Now, now means normally about 15 to 30 minutes. Right now means within the next five minutes. 
Okay, okay, or so right now no, means no, no, right no. now. It's a bit more procrastinating. Yeah, it's a bit like, let's say we're going to have a conversation now, now. It means like, give me like 15 to 30 minutes. It's a now, now. It's a little, it's, it's coming. Right now means, listen, I need you to clean right. your room right now. Move, you fucker. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I've got it cleared up now because, yeah. Because I actually texted Robin. I was like, Robin, what's it doing? Now, now, right now. And she's like, and I got even more, I got more confused than ever. So you've, I think you've cleared it up. So, thanks. I had a lot of this when I was in the UK. I, 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 was, I, fuck, I can't say I was in the UK. I was in London. I spent 2008 to 2012, I was in London. And I had a lot of this. And even my accent and my pronunciation, I had to completely change because there is something about the Afrikaans English accent where, can, uh, would you like the bill, sir? And it was, would you like the bill, sir? It's time to remove the rubbish bins. And you had to pronounce everything slightly different. And I remember I had to tell everyone, what the fuck is the difference between right now and now now? And like, don't you guys know? <laughs> uh, question about, um, I think we're both quite differently in size. And I was wondering, um, I'm about um, 260 pounds, 250 pounds. I assume that you're slightly smaller than that. Is it uh, counting in your favor to be of smaller boat and being a world adventurer and traveler like yourself? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think that, uh, I don't, I suppose it depends on what you're doing. Like, I know that um, uh, cyclists, if you are, um, you know, a big, heavy, muscular guy, then you do really well, like on flat, um, kind of open stretches. Whereas, uh, you know, maybe if you're a lighter frame, uh, you'll do better on climbs and, and mountains. Um, and uh, as far as what I was doing, um, I think, I think, yeah, I actually, I really don't know is the answer to that question. There's probably a bit of a middle ground. Like if you look at, um, you know, Scott's uh, expedition to the South Pole, of course, they figure that the, you know, hauling sledges to the South Pole, um, the big guy, I think his name was Oates, uh, he was one of the first to die. He, they thought, well, I thought he's a big, strong guy and he's pulling the sledge, but actually, and it'll be something, you know, some nutritionists will kind of have a better answer for this, but I guess... Um, he wasn't best suited for, for that kind of activity. So I, I don't know. I felt like I was, uh, yeah, I'm not particularly muscular. I'm just I'm five foot 11. I'm probably 180 pounds, a lot smaller than you. Um, so maybe that makes it a, I don't know, in terms of efficiency, calorie, calorific efficiency. I'm not sure. Maybe. Because uh, I've, yeah, I've been trying this. Uh, I tried the keto diet last year and I tried the low carb diet. And the problem I have, and I don't know if you're a vegan, but I know from speaking to Robin that a son, Davy Duplessis, is a raw vegan versus vegan. I'm not sure, but I've attempted some of these things. But uh, just being so large, I'm six foot three, six foot four, 250 pounds. And uh, if I go on a low carb diet, I get headaches and I don't feel good. And I've done a really good research regarding what I should eat when. And, you know, I've even supplemented stuff. And it's, it's quite hard being this large and, uh, and eating less. Because I'm looking at your body type on some of the videos. I'm like, fuck, that's like the perfect body type to have if you want to do this shit. Like, I'm amazing if you want to have a, if you want to have a fight for half an hour, if you want to play a rugby match, 
if it was Braveheart style Mel Gibson a few hundred years ago, this is amazing. But for the other 23 hours in the day, my body is not really designed to go through all of that. So um, it's just an interesting observation. Yeah, I don't know as far as diet. I mean, I've been plant-based now for five years. I was vegetarian for uh, maybe 15 years before that. Um, and uh, and going switching to plant-based, completely vegan plant-based, was a bit of a... You know, I love my, I love my cheese and uh, I loved eggs and and that were those were the two. I didn't really miss meat at all, to be honest. Um, but mm -hmm. switching to going the last sort of last furlong, if you like, to become fully vegan was uh, was quite tough. And and it just takes more time. You have to spend more time preparing food, having, as you said, like snacks around like in the day, like nuts. Or I I have whenever I leave the house, I always have nuts and. Um, and something just to throw in my mouth, um, and then uh, it's just really planning, planning the planning the food schedules. It just takes more time to to get that protein uh, into your body, and it's protein, of course, can come from. I mean, you can you can get more than enough protein um, if you plan enough and you you soak the lentils or the pulses, and uh, you got to source maybe tofu or tempeh or any of those kind of plant based sources of protein. Um, and it just, you just have to be a bit more. And then I found also, I think going like there was a period of a couple of months where I was like really missing eggs. It's like, oh shit, I'd love to have an egg sandwich or a nice, you know, fry up now kind of thing. And then, and then after a while, it's a bit like coming off sugar, like, uh, trying to get sugar out of your diet. Actually, it's, I think you're, we're also addicted to mm -hmm. definitely addicted to sugar and it's very difficult to win yourself off uh, all the sugar that we have in the stuff that we buy from the from the store uh, but also you know weaning yourself off animal protein i do wonder if there's some if there's some kind of uh, addiction there like uh, that we just crave but enough mm. you get past a certain point maybe six weeks or a couple of months it like that craving becomes less and these that that's been my experience but yeah my wife for example uh, she's also vegan but she craves and she's only five foot one and she craves meat all the time. She's like the worst fucking, fucking example of a vegan ever, you know? She just craves it all the time. And she eats the same food as I do. Um, but, yeah, so I guess everyone's different as well. And I think you'll probably, you do have, it would be harder for somebody of your size and stature and your physique to, you know, to make that, to make that switch. It's it's interesting because uh, the the gentleman, you, unfortunately, you can't listen to the podcast because they they Afrikaans, uh, South African guys in the British Army in Afghanistan, and um, one of them went for the SAS uh, selection and he did it twice. And he said, you know, the the first people to fall out of selection are the big strong guys that look like the Rock and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like you need a more even keel type of uh, middle guy, and it's also weird. Like the discussion we were having is. Are bigger guys weaker mentally because there are certain times where their muscles got them over the line, where someone smaller had to use their brains and the mental strength to get them over the line. And uh, when you, you know, so I, I know a lot of times. For example, if I need to pick up something in the garden, I pick it up where someone else will be thinking of getting a wheelbarrow. There are certain mental exercises that uh, comes without having muscles. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, you you think people who are, who are perhaps have uh, disabilities, and um, you know when we 
you've probably broken legs and arms and shit. And, and when you're not able to, you have to think like laterally, like, oh, how am I going to do this simple task? Like wipe my ass if I'm on the toilet and like, you know, my arm's not working, you know, uh, something like that. You have to sort of think creatively about, uh, about how to, you know, use to use your mind more rather than just using brute strength. And uh, I mean, all those SAS guys, a lot of them are just short, short, stocky guys or special forces i think both in you know in, probably in, in african special forces as well i know the brit guys they're all like short stocky little kind of they're like as wide as they are tall um and uh and actually i was just going to mention there's a great um video on netflix i don't know if you can get it in south africa or not but it's called uh, the, the game game changes and it goes into this whole thing really in depth and it looks at pro athletes um, and how pro athletes that have gone plant-based and it's really interesting because it goes into the science it's got a lot of experts from uh, um, from for example the national um, the, the football league NFL in, in the states and these big kind of linebacker guys Americans and they and the ones that switch to plant-based and they're fucking huge great guys and, yeah. uh, and and a lot of them perform better once they switch to plant-based. I mean, these are big guys. And there's even a weightlifter. He's like the world's strongest man or was, was, was yeah. years ago. And huge, great guy. I think he's German. And he's just enormous. And he, he picks up like four four guys. And, <laughs> and so it, it just challenges some of the preconceptions as to whether or not you can be strong, but also just eat plants. And it's, it's a really, it's, I would really recommend uh, the documentary, if your if your listeners can uh, can can access it, I would definitely recommend it. Like it was weird how uh, when I was doing a lot of lifestyle changes where I was going to the next level, I watched this documentary and uh, I was fascinated by it. And uh, uh, and then shortly afterwards, one of my my podcasting idol is Joe Rogan and he had somebody come onto his podcast that shot down the whole documentary and then I think the the, the main guy from the documentary is Chris and uh, he got Chris onto the podcast to debate this guy and it was and it's a four-hour uh, podcast and it was fascinating to see the discussions and there's just there's I, I like to use the phrase, there's many different ways to skin a cat, you know, uh, please, I, I love trying different ways to do something in life. And uh, definitely, I think there is uh, being more plant based, going about it differently. I think this is a wonderful, um, you know, eye opener to doing things in a different way. Plus, you have better erections. Yeah. <laughs> I used to <laughs> seriously, man. But is that is that true? Because that is controversial. Because it's not peer reviewed yet. <laughs> can you speak on it? All I can tell you, all I can tell you, is that up until five years ago, I would. It was a pretty fucking pathetic scene, you know. I mean, it was pretty sad. You know, when you're twenties and thirties, it's like you're you're up there. You know, it's like no yeah. problem getting a boner. Um, and then you know you get into your forties, and and now I'm fifty two, and it's just. Uh, the sad state of affairs, you know, and, um, you know, when you do get erected, it's like, how to keep the thing going, and, you know, when you were, you know, so this is maybe too, too much information for your viewers, but, like, when you ejaculate in your 20s, it's like, you can do, like, maybe you can do, like, 12 inches, you know, it's like, fuck yeah, boom, and, you know, your 30s, you're down to maybe six inches, and then by the time you get a 45, it basically, it basically ends up on your shoe, yeah? <laughs> 
fucking pathetic. <laughs> but what I found, uh, what I, it just doesn't even make it. You know, so what I found, I mean, when I wake up now, when I first wake up in the morning, I'm like, you know, I've got a tent. I'm basically like, oh, I don't remember going to sleep in a tent. And it's like, oh, shit, that's, wow, I have a massive erection. And that's, so it has, I, I can personally attest to having better erections, just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not. This being... is real science right here. This is real research and real science, real peer review. Fucking right, man. We are, we are the ship, yeah? <laughs> Fascinating. Okay, so many questions I still want to ask you, and I know that we, uh, we're slowly running out of time, but um, uh, is going plant-based, is that some... That, is that just because of sustainability, or is there other reasons for going plant-based? For me, it's three things. In your diet. Um, yeah, three things. One, uh, mm. um, the ethical piece. So I don't, uh, um, you know, I don't like how animals are produced for, like mass produced for, for, for their flesh. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if uh, for example, my sister has a, has a, has a farm in a, uh, up near Oxford and they produce, they're very extensive farmers. And, and I think if you're going to produce livestock, then, there is a way to do it, uh, where the animals are treated right. And uh, but still, I've you know I've I worked on a ranch in Colorado, and I've been to enough slaughterhouses, abattoirs, and even the most you know the cleanest, most you know uh, humane ones. It's still they're still horrible places, and the animals know mm. they, they. You can tell that they know they're going to get, um, you know that they're going to get a. They, they're going to be killed, and you, you and I read some really interesting kind of uh, reports on on people who work in places like that. You know, just the psychological health of people who work in meat and meat packing plants, and and mm -hmm. you know, to see hear some terrible stories of animals that are not dispatched properly, and um, yeah, it's just I think it's I think it's a very kind of violent way to get your to get your uh, your nutrition. So there's there's the ethical piece, then there's the climate change piece. Because of course we know that uh, the livestock and dairy industry is, re is is responsible for a pretty big chunk of carbon emissions, somewhere somewhere between fourteen and eighteen percent, and um, and then also I just feel better, honestly. Merv, I feel at fifty-two, I feel better, younger, um, more limber, more act. I feel better than I did when I was in my late twenties and still a meat eater. I really mm -hmm. did. Mm. Uh, and and for anyone listening to my podcast, uh, they know that I like mixed martial arts. And I watched this doc, uh, podcast uh, with Rashad Evans, who used to be the light heavyweight world champion in the UFC. And he's gone vegan or plant-based. And he's a lot smaller and leaner. And he says that he feels the best that he's ever felt. You know, it's uh, fascinating to hear a lot of people go down that route. Um and uh, maybe, maybe if I lose more muscle, uh, then I can. I don't know. I would love to see if I can figure that one out. Mm, mm, mm. I think you just have to be quite sensitive. Uh, yeah, you know, be quite. Uh, you know, probably more so for yourself than anyone. Else. You just have to be really careful that you, you know, that you that you do it right and um, that you don't starve yourself of of essential uh, nutrients. Last two questions. If you could go back in time and give a 24-year-old uh, Jason any advice, what would it be? And um, what is your next project that you maybe want to say, if you're allowed to say, of uh, upcoming things that you are doing? So, yeah, the first question, um, 
I think that uh, uh, trust your, you know, I would tell my 24 year old self, like trust, trust your gut more. Um, the thing, uh, thing that I found uh, increasingly as I get older is that the gut, the decisions that I've made from my, uh, from my, from my core, from my gut, you know, when you know something or you, you kind of think that this might be the right thing to do, but then your rational head kicks in and says, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, it's too risky. Uh, other people will laugh at you or your parents will think you're um, being irresponsible. And, um, and, and, and I've been fairly, you know, when I was young, I was, I was yeah, I was a little bit more gung ho, but still I was uh, more likely to maybe um, not trust my gut. I think, I don't think we're, we're, we're taught to, to follow our rational minds in the kind of societies that we, in Western societies that we grow up in. You know, we're, we're taught to suppress that, that other side of decision-making, which I think is very often, uh, you know, is, is uh, quite perceptive. And I'm thinking about things even to the point of life, uh, you know, making life decisions and career decisions. Um, I mean, I knew when I was in my teens, when I looked at adults, you know, parent, people of my parents' age, and I knew that they were pursuing, you know, I saw them pursuing these careers, and very often they weren't happy in themselves, and they were part of this thing, this machine, this economy, uh, filling this role that now we know that these, that, that that system is not sustainable, and no wonder they were miserable, maybe in their own personal lives. Not only were they miserable, but uh, they were also, uh, um, you know, contributing to the demise of our natural world through this this organism, uh, capitalism that uh, is 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 enough. It's like a parasite. You know, it feeds on the natural world and it feeds on us. And I I just think if people maybe li uh, listen to their gut more, they would know that hmm, there's not something that's that's not completely, it's not necessarily the right way to go. So we need more free thinkers. We need more people um, who go against the tide, especially now, given the, the state of the world. We need people who challenge and disrupt the, par the established paradigm that we've been living under for the last 300 years. And, uh, and that requires people to listen to their gut more, in my opinion. And as far as what I'm doing next, I'm, right now I'm in England. I'm, um, I'm in a really shitty Airbnb out near Brighton, which is south of London. And uh, I, I thought I recognized this when I first rented it. It's really just the cheapest one I could find, you know, it's like a hundred bucks a week. And I thought, I've got in here. So I, and the guy was really surprised. He's like, no one's ever rented this for more than two nights before. And I didn't really appreciate the significance <laughs> of that until I got in the place and realized how fucking horrible it is. There's like, there's like maps of Africa <laughs> on the carpet. And I, there, I think, I think this has been there's quite a number of low budget pornographic movies that have been shot in this, Airbnb flat. Anyway, so the reason why I'm here, <laughs> um, sitting on a couch that has some suspicious stains down the side of them, and they're not mine, I would say, is that um, I'm preparing to, uh, I know that's really, uh, so I'm preparing to do a, a round Britain circumnavigation um, uh, in my boat, the same boat that I went around the world in. And the idea is uh, that, um, so we have a commission with BBC. Uh, to do some, to do four episodes, and uh, the idea is to uh, go into communities around the country and look at how people have adapted to um, uh, to the lockdown and how some of those lifestyle changes are con 
uh, are conducive towards the country meeting its carbon neutral targets for 2050. So that's, but I don't know whether or not at this point, whether or not I'll be able to do this project or not, because right now the UK is, uh, well, our death rate and infection rate is still going up. And I, I don't know if we're going to come out of lockdown in time for me to be able to do it this year. Uh, would you, if you could say anything to Boris Johnson, would you say anything to him? Well, you know, I, I, I'm pretty apolitical, Merv. You know, I'm, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm probably more left of center, definitely. But I think politicians, most of them, unfortunately, need to be, uh, need to be sent to the slaughterhouse, um, and that we can, uh, yeah, put them to good use. But uh, um, no, I think Boris, uh, I think he's. His time in hospital, having got a dose of the virus, I think has probably humbled him. You know, we were talking earlier in the podcast about, you know, life events that, that bring us down a couple of notches. And maybe, you know, all politicians were human once, right? Isn't that the theory? Um, and maybe, he, <laughs> maybe he's uh, discovered a little bit, maybe he's rediscovered a bit of humanness there through, through his through his experience of nearly dying in the hospital and and i just hope that uh, he 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 maybe rethinks how we can restart the economy i mean the uk started this mess in terms of climate change you know we started uh you know through the industrial revolution we started uh, um the whole thing and and we i think we have a unique uh, opportunity to to um to show uh how how economies can work differently so we can with these government bailouts, I think there should be uh, conditions tied to big business. Say, okay, well, we're going to give you this taxpayer money, but you have to change your practices to be more sustainable, uh, to consider the implications of your of your practices on the environment. So there's a real opportunity here to restart the economy, but make it greener and 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 to make it less carbon intensive. And I think so. Boris is like he has that opportunity to to really set an amazing legacy for future generations to look back on and say, yeah, that guy, he really did, you know, he made the right choice there. He did the right thing at that time. Yeah, definitely. And um, I'm I'm looking on and uh, it's very interesting uh, to see. I just, uh, I, I know we're running out of time. I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, please don't go offline. Uh, I'm going to stop recording and we're going to um, just uh, debrief for a couple of minutes. But thank you so much. This has been a massive privilege. It's been the most nervous uh, I've ever been before a podcast. Uh, it's number 50, so it's a nice round number. Um, I just want to say thank you so much. I'm really grateful for your time and it's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, it's been great fun. Thank you, Mo. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to press stop and we're going to continue chatting. <laughs>